365 Success app offers a simple daily tip for a more balanced life. 365 Success is a one-year plan over six levels where a new tip is displayed each day. The people behind 365 Success are academic and creative life hackers Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Graham Hughes and Marie O'Riordan. Discover 365 Success, available now in the App Store. Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Purple Psychology. I'm Marie O'Riordan. Thank you for tuning in in 33 countries on six continents. Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, thank you for being here. Thank you. This time you were discussing educational blueprints. How do you go about doing a blueprint in education for a person? Yes, I, I wanted to, to write a book two years ago. I haven't completely shelved it, but one of the challenges I had was I didn't just want to write a book with all my opinions because I thought that would be kind of boring. So I wanted to interview a lot of people on their school stories. And I found that the average person is quite happy to tell you about their school stories, but a lot of famous people are not. They're not willing to go on the record. They're great for discussing it off the record, but they won't let you make it public, which is very frustrating. No, so it, 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 was, it, was, it was an interesting exercise, you know, where you go along to interview somebody and you suddenly find that they just completely shut down. And you're kind of like, okay, we can talk about other things. So I suppose um, what is easy for you to understand and for you to follow yourself is to go along and read about historical people. So, for instance, I did a lot of research into Charles Dickens because, um, you know, I was looking at the combinations between school and literacy. Um, and Charles Dickens was very interesting because he made his material very accessible because it was produced very cheaply in the sense that it was um, paperback um, and really was paper um, format um, episodes and serials produced um, quite often handed out in newspapers and stuff. So he was, he was very interesting. He had a huge following. And then he did a lot of work on the theatre, so a lot of his was dramatised. And at the end of his life then, he went on book reading tours. He was one of the first people to do that. And he actually read out and dramatised um, and did adaptations of his work to actually read on stage. And he was even in Ireland. I think the sum total of three people went to see him in Limerick. It was hugely disappointing to discover when we went on this tour that Charles Dickens got shafted in my native Limerick. Yes, he was very well received in Dublin, but only three people in Limerick had ever heard of him, it seemed. Right. Now, we packed up the car, went on a ferry, went on a tour of the UK. You got to visit Oxford and Cambridge again, where you studied. And because your books are on sale around the world, including places like Blackwells in Oxford and Waterstones in the UK, and we went to various bookshops, but we also went to the Charles Dickens Museum. Yes, which was fascinating to, to go back and see his real writing desk and, you know, um, original versions of his work. And, yeah, it was, it was great. Um, he, he had an interesting personal life, which um, a lot has been based on, and there was a film on that, I think, this year. Um, but the bit for me that was most fascinating was that he only actually had a couple of months of formal education himself. Um, and the reason that he had more education was because he actually stayed back in Kent and lived with his schoolmaster for a number of months so that he could attend school longer than the rest of his family. So I think he only went to school for about four months. Yet he was a prolific writer and one of the biggest sellers in the history of UK authors. Yes, but what was most fascinating for me was that he had a huge philanthropy side to him and he actually had a house in Shepherd's Bush where he was trying to take women off the streets and he realised that people would be still quite prejudiced towards them. So, you know, moving them into a house and teaching them home skills and how to run a house and how to, to knit and, you know, to 
to do um, sewing and all those sort of skills that they might not have had. It wasn't enough. The people were still going to view them quite poorly. So he arranged for them to emigrate to Australia to start a new life so that they would be able to get married if they wanted to and to actually start a clean slate. Um, but because of that philanthropy work, it allowed him to get his first eldest child into Eton. So in one generation in a family, you went from the father not really having any education to his eldest son going to Eton. It's quite something in the UK. It, it was, and some of his other kids went to boarding school in Paris after that because Charles Dickens spent a lot of time in Paris. Now, what was really fascinating for me, and I probably touched on a nerve when I tried to research this with some of the living family, was that despite the fact that he obviously really cared about literacy for the masses in, in, a, in a big sense, and he thought that it was a very important skill for people to have, and that education obviously mattered to him, even though he hadn't really got an opportunity to have it himself. And in fact, I should wind back, the only reason that Charles Dickens could read was because his father grew up in a house and um, because his parents, so this would be Charles Dickens's great-grandparents, were actually servants. And he grew up in quite a, attached to quite a well-to-do house with a lot of books. And so there was a lot of books in the family that were kept. And there's a, a, a sort of an impression that Charles Dickens's father might have been a legitimate child as well of the well-to-do um, manor house that his mother was working in. And so there was all these books carried down through the generations, and that's why Charles Dickens got to read. So it, it was fascinating that reading and education were so important, but yet his kids actually didn't do that well. His, his son really sort of flopped out of Cambridge. Um, he tried to set one son up as a tea merchant in a time when that was an amazing career to go into the financial market. And he, uh, another one joined the military and so on. But actually, they lost the family wealth and lost all of Charles Dickens's money um, very quickly within one generation. And actually, most of uh, the education didn't, didn't actually really stand to them. And so there was still that blueprint there where his grandfather was actually very bad with money. Um, Charles Dickens ended up always supporting a number of family people. He always had a number of houses on the go. He always looked after a lot of different people. In fact, he was very interesting in his timescale because he made a lot of money as a writer which was quite unusual, especially at the time. I did have the figures, but I don't have them off the top of my head now. He was exceptionally wealthy, yeah. Yeah, no, but he was keeping four houses going in London and having, you know, looking after all of his different family members. But yet, the next generation actually lost all his wealth. Which is still true today when it comes to generational wealth anyway. They always lose it. Yes, it does seem to happen. There's only, what, eight or nine families in the world that have managed to keep it? I think it's less than that now. Right. Um, and, and so it is. It, it, and it's also very interesting, I think, politically to look at now because we're moving towards a time with governments, with taxes, where they're actually making it very hard with the legacy effect for people to hold on to family homes. So we're pushing people more and more towards not having legacy and not having this established security, which we're actually going to talk about in the next episode. Let's go to educational blueprints in Hogwarts. Yes, I find it fascinating. Even Harry Potter gets school wrong, you know, because you have this magical world. They could have done anything with school, but they did what everybody relates to, which is why Harry, people love Harry Potter, because it's an experience and, you know, you can relate to it. It's this crazy magical world, but there's enough of it steeped in reality. So they still have homework. They have to do rolls of parchment. Um, it's measured in length of parchment instead. They have prefects. Um, they have detention. Um, 
you know, it has all of the role models of school that we associate. Magic, you couldn't get a more practical subject, and yet they spend half their life studying books and theory. Um, they don't actually, they, they, they live for the practicals in the same way as people live for the practicals in the science lab in school. So there's so much steeped in actual reality. Um, so you couldn't really kind of step away from that for people to love a story as much as they love Harry Potter. But I do wish there had been a magical school. Getting away from that franchise, we have consulted for movie studios in Hollywood on their experiences for fans of the movies and different franchises, and they didn't get it right either. No, it's interesting because the movies, they're very visual people, and they think that if they just create a visual exhibition, that that will be an experience for everybody, and it's not. So let's return to Hogwarts. What would be in your room of requirements? Okay, so I did actually write a list. I, I sat down and I did this when I started out six years ago. So... Um, I thought exam centres should be independent so that there should be one in every school. So similar to universities, you actually had an exam board that sat and decided what was really going on with people. Um, that, you know, that that would happen for every year in school so that you, you, know, you couldn't get to sixth year and suddenly realise that someone wasn't doing well and didn't actually have any comprehension skills. You know. um, I thought that the classes should be completely mixed in, in age and ability. Um, people progress at different, different rates, like there's a development path for people and we don't have any space for that in schools at the moment. Um, so it's too structured, there's not enough fluid movement for people um, and it doesn't suit people's personalities to all be grouped together in that way. Um, I thought there should be no average, average does my nut. Um, really? Yeah. Um, I don't like the way that we use um, support people or, well, they're called SNAs in Ireland, but, you know, support people. I thought that they should be allowed to float more in classrooms and in the school as a whole, rather than just sitting beside one person and actually pretty much doing their work for them, which is what usually happens. Um, you have a huge amount of experience with people dealing with that at the moment. Yes, the only thing I can categorically say, no matter what way you feel about it, is that if a child has an SNA, they will not succeed to their true potential. And it doesn't matter what I do with them, they never succeed until that SNA stops. I thought there should be more reflective learning. Um, we do a huge amount of reflection um, on where you're at, where you're going, what's happened, what's changed, what's easy, what's difficult. And um, we do that with people even as young as five. Um, that doesn't happen in the real world. Um, I thought that there shouldn't be textbooks anymore in the sense that I think that there's so much material out there and so much is changing in the world and so much is happening. It's very hard to use a textbook at university level. You might use it for a couple of core ideas, but really the whole research and what's happening, like if you're studying science, you have to be up to date. So similarly, like I think... What kind of happens, particularly at primary school level, is that people are forced into buying a set of textbooks and then the teachers feel that they have to use them because the parents have had to buy them. But it's not necessarily what people want to be doing. Um, so I do think, and especially with iPads and everything else is coming into the environment, that a certain amount of interactive technology is really good for people. If not all interactive technology, but some is good. And I think that there's more to life than textbooks at this stage. I... 
um, thought that there should be more than one primary school teacher. There is a massive gap between primary and secondary um, education. So when you start off in from ages 5 to 12, you only have one teacher quite often, and then suddenly you have 10 to cope with. And also, it's unrealistic to expect one person to have that many specialties too. Um, and I think a, a number of people could bring far more to you and to a classroom than just one person. I also think that there's no room for development for the teachers. And this is one of the things that's happened on my team. And I don't have the answer to this yet. But all I know is, is that teachers seem to go into the profession and they seem to feel like they're doing the same thing year in, year out on rotation. And they're not actually progressing themselves. Um, and they do have a burnout phase. And this doesn't happen when I'm teaching team because I employ people who are studying in their fields and they're developing, growing in their fields while simultaneously teaching for me. And so they've been able to go away and work and to do, to progress in their own lives. Um, and that progression is then brought into their teaching for me. I, I don't know what the answer is, but there's a, a fundamental development flaw. Like if you employed somebody in a company and you didn't develop them and move them on through the company for years on end, you wouldn't get the best out of them. I don't know how you can expect to get the best out of teachers doing that to them in the same way. It's very constraining. I thought that there should be more open spaces in school. There's too many hidden environments where things like bullying happen. There's, there's less openness and exposure. And people are very segregated too. Um, the, the, the staff and me and my space and the learning spaces were never segregated in my school so that there was this openness. And I can see, you know... Um, I could see other people going, oh, I want to have the staff room to hide in. I hate the staff room to hide in. You never had a staff room in your school? No, we had a communal kitchen that all the students could use it equally. Everyone, well. parents, students, everyone. Everyone could use it. I like the idea of being able to rearrange the furniture. I bought furniture that could be rearranged, stacked, folded, taken apart, um, dismantled. For each class? Yeah. Um, I don't like the idea that we sit down for so many classes. And I do like the idea that the students take control of the space. So, right, we're going to work in a group here. We need a group table. Can you all move the furniture into a group table for me? Oh, we're going to do something different here. We're going to do speed mats, and you're going to sit opposite each other and almost like speed dating. Can we move the furniture around and do that? Um, there needs to be that flexibility. I hope they don't know about speed dating at that age. <laughs> well, it's speed mats. It's the same concept. <laughs> And uh, I, I think every teenager knows about speed dating. You might okay. as well assume that. I was just a naive teenager then. Um, I don't think speed dating was around in your time. No, I am ancient. Much older than you, I know. I'm aware. And what would happen? This is the, the last question I will ask, and I'll wrap up the podcast on this, right? What would happen if students could pick their classes and vote for their feet? Because when this has happened in universities, lecturing standards have got better. The world might end. It might. <laughs> Episode 17 of Purple Psychology. More details from purplepsychology.com. Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, educationalist, thank you for your blueprint ideas this time. Thank you. 365 Success app offers a simple daily tip for a more balanced life. 365 Success is a one-year plan over six levels where a new tip is displayed each day. The people behind 365 Success are academic and creative life hackers Dr. Nisha O'Reilly, Dr. Graham Hughes and Marie O'Reardon. 
Discover 365 Success, available now in the App Store.